the motto before we even knew this was a motto was everyone in, no one out. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. You would see all kinds of configuration. We weren't saying that we had everything figured out or that we agreed on everything, but we knew that we had to come together, that there was something more important that we needed to stand on that was even more important than the very important disagreements that we might have. Fighting authoritarianism, challenging hate, bigotry, and violence, and championing inclusive democracy. These incredible themes define the age in which we live. And Eric K. Ward is a national leader who has dedicated his life to studying and exposing corrosive impulses undermining our culture and our nation. He's currently executive vice president at Race Forward, which helps people take effective action towards racial equity. On this week's show, we'll get Eric's thoughts on the biggest challenges facing us and benefit from his decades of study and leadership around those themes. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Each week, I am in conversations with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.com. And now to my guest. Eric Ward is executive vice president at Race Forward and has held prominent positions at the Western State Center, Southern Poverty Law Center, the Ford Foundation, and is currently the chair of the board at the Proteus Fund. With deep expertise on hate movements, attacks on minorities and democracy, as well as effective strategies for defending human rights and values, Eric is the right voice for the time we find ourselves in. And I'm so grateful to have Eric Ward join me on State of Belief Radio. Eric, welcome. It's so great to be on with you, Paul. Thanks for the invite. Um, It's a pleasure to have a chance to to hang out and and connect with folks today. Listen, I, 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 I want our listeners to know that how excited I am for this conversation because your name has um, been in so many of the conversations I've had over the years. And I was like, you know, getting intimidated. And then I got a chance to talk to you. And I was like, oh, this is not only a um, a genius, but a really nice guy. And that's always a little disconcerting, but actually wonderful. So so thank you for being here. And I want to I dive in in a very particular way because – I just read an article. We should was- wait before before you read this article. We should wait. We should wait that statement towards the nice guy. Uh, uh, we'll see how smart I am, but I'm I'm excited to be in conversation. And it was uh, I felt uh, very at ease when we first met. Well, you're very kind, and but I I do want to take us back to an article you wrote last year that that described a moment in the 1990s 
when you were in Eugene, Oregon, to talk about a movie about white supremacy, and you had gathered together a group, including a local rabbi, and you were about to show this movie. I think it was not in our town. It was, a, or not in our town too, I think. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden you saw a group of a half a dozen white supremacists coming down the street towards you. And you were like, okay, everybody, get inside. And the rabbi decided to stand by your side. So you had a black man and a uh, Jewish man. And then all of a sudden you were encircled by this group of white supremacists in full regalia with bandanas over their face. So take us back to that moment, because I think this is, this is, it's easy to talk, but you were there in a moment of existential threat. That's different. And I, I just want you to, to tell us a little bit about the emotions you were feeling there, but then also tell us like what you decided to do. Yeah. So it was, uh, we were down in Eugene and the phenomenal organizer, uh, uh, Michelle Lefkowitz, had organized an event in Eugene. It was part of a regional showing of uh, Not In Our Town 2, which were stories about how communities had come together to respond to hate crimes and violence and intimidation. This was part of a national screening program uh, that we had been coordinating. And she invited me to come down and to introduce the program and, and to moderate it. And I was uh, delighted to. Eugene is where I cut my teeth on organizing. So it's the evening of the event. And uh, a few of us are outside. Most of the attendees have already come in in preparation for the film screening and then discussion. And so a few of us are outside. And uh, we're, we're on the, uh, the, the space. The public space is not in an actual like public facing. I mean, it's not on the street. The entrance is actually on the back end towards a river. And you have to take a long path in. And it's beautiful. But on that evening, I looked up the path. And we saw about a dozen members of a neo-Nazi organization at the time called Aryan Pride. Uh, uh, marching up towards the the event. Now, some of the individuals of Aryan Pride had extremely violent uh, uh, backgrounds. This was not uh, a good thing. This was a public event. This was a community event. And so it wasn't like it was filled with um, folks who, in the punk scene, who had to physically defend themselves against uh, uh, neo-Nazis. This was potentially a, a disastrous moment the first thing I realized was I needed to, to de-escalate this uh, uh, interaction. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew it was better if folks were inside and not outside. And so I, I asked in my very directive self uh, for folks to go inside. And uh, most folks uh, heeded my call, uh, except for one person who was at the time a rabbi in uh, uh, Eugene, Oregon, uh, uh, Rabbi Yitz. And uh, Rabbi Yitz was not going in. Now, look, Paul, I really wanted him to go in, right? He was wearing a kippah. He was identifiably Jewish, right? This was a deeply anti-Semitic organization. I was going to have a hard enough time as, a, as an African-American. But it was pretty clear to me within like a minute that uh, he wasn't going to leave me. He wasn't going to, to, to leave the situation. 
Uh, I think I wrote chips uh, fall as they may. Uh, uh, he was going to be there with me every moment. Uh, quickly, uh, very quickly, we were surrounded in a half circle uh, by these neo-Nazis. And I thought the best thing that I could do was uh, uh, not to run and to ask a lot of questions about themselves, right? Uh, uh, to start asking them things. So we started to, to ask them and pepper them with questions. And uh, uh, eventually the tension began to, to ebb, uh, ebb down a little bit. And one of them asked if they could come in as if we were going to, to keep them out. And I let them know they, they could come into the, to the event. It was a public event. We expected folks to act like they might in, uh, right on their best behavior and that there wouldn't be any issues. So as they started to come in, some uh, were masked up and I asked them to, to take out their mask. Uh, one is there was an anti-mask ordinance and I didn't want them to get arrested. As much as I might disagree with them ideologically, I didn't want to see anyone else caught up in the criminal justice system in this country that has had a, a significant impact. So eventually they, they took off their mask. They trusted me enough to know, one, I wasn't lying to them. Two, it was my intent not to see anyone get arrested that night. And that's what happened. Eventually, I was able to speak with the head of Aryan Pride who was there that night. And I walked up to him and I put out my hand and uh, eventually he shook my hand and I introduced myself and had him introduce himself to me. And uh, the screening happened. Imagine that the screening happened with a dozen neo-Nazis. The question and answer period came. And of course they wanted to dominate the question and answer period. I told them I would take some questions, but that this was not their event. If they wanted to host an event or if they wanted to talk uh, more that there were folks in the audience and myself who would be more than glad to have a conversation. The rabbi raised his hand. So did the head of the NAACP. And uh, I'll tell you this, not to make more of this, but uh, within the end of that year, the head of Aryan Pride uh, had left the organization and, and renounced white nationalism and neo-Nazism. His stance was so profound that the members of his own uh, organization and gang beat him so badly that he was hospitalized for weeks. He's my inspiration. He and I still talk. Well, for me, hearing that story, there's just, there's so many lessons about what is possible, not necessarily probable, but possible. The first thing is I love that you ask them questions because curiosity can be disarming in a way. Like the idea of like, I actually want to know more about you with people who we're adversaries with or we perceive that. That's not generally what we lead with, which is curiosity. Um, and then there was generosity of saying, I don't want you arrested tonight. Like, actually, I'm, I'm looking out for you here. And then, you know, just this, this courage that you had to ask their name and give them your name and to say, like, I want us to know that about, like, almost like an intimacy, a desire for, not in an overly way, but like some sort of intimacy, connection. And, and then I think just this idea of raising your hand and saying, yeah, I'm willing to show up. I don't think any of them 
walked away unchanged. And then, you know, you, you talk about like that one leader who not only was it your work, but also, you know, the, the fact of him being kind of softened so that you mentioned in your writing in this great piece called You're My Inspiration and it's about race and I, I, we will put it in at stateofbelief.com, but it's a brilliant piece. But you said like his daughter was watching something and then Sesame Street came on and there were people of color on Sesame Street and he got, he was like, oh, I don't want you to watch this. And his daughter started crying because she was like, I want to watch it. I want, this is the world I want and you're trying to take it away from me. And like he had that moment where like, what am I doing? I, I just think that this is an amazing story for us to understand who you are in the world because you have a lot of fancy titles. Let's let's face it. You're like a yeah. you're, you're like BMOC. You're like big man on campus, you know. Um, but what it is is actually rooted in some real clear bravery. And so I, I want to start with an understanding of like that, and and maybe we can just take a step back and and think about how you got there. Like you grew up in L.A. Did you grow up in a religious household? Or what, what? What's your background as far as like how faith fits into this work that you're doing on race and religion and all the all the great things you're doing? Yeah. So so it's interesting that the two biggest influences on me growing up are faith and punk rock, or you know, if, if I could put it in P's, right? It was Protestantism. I grew up Southern Baptist, so I, I should let folks know that right away and uh, patriotism and punk rock, right? Those are the three P's of my growing up. What I mean by that is, look, I grew up in California. So I was born at a time where uh, white supremacy as the rule of law was still firmly in effect, right? So I was born in a time where black people were still legally not considered full human beings in, in this country. Now, that was my earliest childhood. So I'm, I'm, I'm a child of desegregation. And uh, this is an important part of the story of growing up in Los Angeles and, and in particular Long Beach. I come up just as desegregation of the public schools are happening. And the schools were segregated, even in, on the West Coast. So that desegregation experience has a deep impact on me. I'm going to seventh, eighth, and ninth grade every day. And uh, I'm getting off the city bus and I'm walking the rest of the way to, to school. And literally, Paul, people are driving by adults screaming at the seventh grade. Go back to that. Uh. Right. Uh, monkey. You, you can't imagine the vileness. And uh, it happened so quickly to me and other Latino and black kids. We, we don't even tell our parents. I never once told a teacher this mm. was happening. Mm. One. You're in junior high school, and if you remember for a second, for those who've been in junior high school, middle school, and survived, the last thing you want to do is to stand out. Mm. And so, you know, you just absorb that, and it became normalized very quickly. And that was part of my growing up experience. The other piece is I grew up in uh, Los Angeles and, and Long Beach, and I grew up in a Navy time. I grew up in a very conservative moment in American history. Uh, by the time I was in eighth, ninth grade, I knew that I was going to join the military uh, wow. as soon as I graduated wow. uh, from high school, right? I enlisted in the U.S. Navy. I pre-enlisted at the age of 17 and went off to boot camp 
shortly after my 18th birthday. That was very much, right? I was a recipient of the Daughters of the American Revolution. I was baptized Southern Baptist at the age of 12. Attended church regularly, was very active in my congregation. That was important to me. And there's this moment where also it's the arrival of punk and hip hop. Now, we didn't know the difference between punk and hip hop. It was all just new music. As I tell folks, it wasn't Barry Manilow. It wasn't Captain and Tennille. It was like live and it was fresh and it was exciting. And because it came at the same time as desegregation, at a time where we were trying to figure out who we were, right, in those junior high school, high school ages, it became a competing identity to our racial differences. Mm. So there's this moment when ultimately helps me because I also write in an article, I could have actually turned out as a leader on the far right. I think it's very possible. But the difference is this new identity shows up. It's called punk. It's really exciting. And it's allowing us to build relationships that aren't actually grounded in our differences, but in the thing we're most passionate about. And so we become very passionate about this music, about the scene. What do we wear? What's the right language? Imagine it becomes this vibrant subculture. And there are kids of color in it. And there are LGBTQ kids in it. There are artists. There are uh, street kids. You imagine it. They are part of the scene. But the only thing we care about is the love of the music. But then these other folks start showing up. And they start telling some of us we can't be there in this thing we love and they're physically assaulting us and and beating on us and so we have one choice and the choice becomes what do we do and our anti-racism ultimately was grounded in this idea that racism was preventing us from fully sub celebrating our subculture uh. it wasn't about systemic bias we didn't understand anything that there were folks who were telling us we couldn't be together and the only thing we wanted to was to be together. Oh, God, I think that's so beautiful. I also, you know, music saved my life as well. And I just, I feel like this idea of punk as like a, a locus of actually people coming together and um, learning from one another. And you, you, I, you know, people can't see you, but you're wearing a black flag uh, shirt and like is Henry Rollins, right? Became a, I think a fantastic poet and a fantastic leader and, and, and a spokesperson. And these, this was going on and people, like kind of dismissed it, but it actually offered like a kind of response to the culture, the predominant culture, that it was a, a refusal of the dominant culture and saying, actually, you know, we're going to be something different. The first time I listened to Public Enemy, ha having been interested in kind of punk rock, and I was like, oh, this is the punkest thing I've ever heard. The way they used music and the way they used lyrics. And I was like, oh, man, we've just reached another level. And, you know, and, and so like, I think music is an under-celebrated part of what it means to do this work about racial equity, about um, coming together, about fighting against supremacy. I'm so glad you led with it in a way because we, we don't hear about it. Or we hear about like the the people who were used to hearing about it, like how gospel played a role in other forms of music. Punk is generally something that's thought of as nihilistic or whatever, but that wasn't the point of it. You go to the Navy and then somehow you decide, oh, you know what? All of this is my patriotism, my Protestantism, my yeah. punk is leading me towards yeah. somewhere. And and yeah. you you start like building 
building a toolkit to 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 um, address what you see in America and like where did where did these various tools come from? Yeah, so you know, so I mean, I basically come up with these values, right? So one is you you don't tolerate bullies, right? You you always treat people with kindness and respect as the first point of contact, regardless of who they are, right? You you try to help people in the best ways. Right. You try to be creative. You try to add to your scene. And if you can't add to it, at least you don't try to tear it apart. Right. Mm. And those are some of the things that, that I grew up in. I grew up in deep rooted uh, 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 a faith tradition that taught me like the two pillars. Right. Uh, and now, again, we know now borrow from Judaic scriptures. Right. But, you know, in Christianity, I was taught in my Southern Baptist tradition that the two most important things were you love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and you love your neighbor as you love thyself. And then everything else was, you could debate it, right? But but you started with those two lenses. Those are the things that I learned growing up and that uh, uh, one loves their country. I'm not, uh, uh, I don't call myself a patriot because I'm into the exceptionalism, right? That that's right. not what I mean, right? Right. Uh, I don't think we're we're exceptional. I think there are things that I love about the country that I just love because there are things I'm just used to, and uh, it helps me appreciate uh, other things that I didn't grow up with. It's it's an abundance mindset, and so I grew mm. up with an abundance mindset. Here's what happens: I move up to Eugene, Oregon. The the war on drugs takes off. In, in Southern California, uh, the recession hits, uh, 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 the punk scene is decaying into some of the worst nihilistic tribalism, right? Uh, uh, it's collapsing on itself. Uh, it's, it's a hard time. And uh, I and my friends have these fears. We're not gonna live to be 26, right? None of us think we're gonna reach the age of, of 26. Some of us decide to try a different option, and uh, we end up moving. I'll cut it short, but we end up moving up to Eugene, Oregon. So imagine I'm moving from like uh, uh, L.A. to Eugene, Oregon. I had never even been to Eugene, Oregon. I had so many stereotypes; it's embarrassing, right? I remember asking my friends like if they had running water and electricity, like really <laughs> little house in the prairie, wow. right? Was going on in my head. It's embarrassing and apologies because, you know, I'm a proud Oregonian now. And uh, uh, those stereotypes and myths could have kept me from going. Mm. But my punk rock courage says jump off that stage. <laughs> so we get up here and lo and behold, um, I find myself into a larger scale uh, a challenge that had been facing the punk scene for years, right? So punk rockers have been, you know, I can't even uh, uh, exaggerate the level of violence that punk rockers were facing from this white nationalist movement in the 80s and 90s, the, the beatings, the assaults, the intimidation that was, that was happening. And I get here in the Pacific Northwest and I realize it's happening up here, but in a larger scale. It's happening in rural communities. There are organizations that are intimidating uh, 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 the folks who live in those communities, biracial couples, 
uh, mixed race, biracial children, right? They are uh, uh, so confident they're even uh, threatening law enforcement, right? The, the, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's terrifying. There are bombings. There are murders. There's the murder-beating death of Mulligator Saran in 1988, uh, Ethiopian student who was just on his way to home from school in Portland and is beaten to death by uh, neo-Nazi skinheads with baseball bats. A few years earlier, there's the assassination of a Jewish radio talk show host by the name of Alan Berg of KOA Radio in Denver, who had been taking on white nationalists around their Holocaust denial live on air. And they became so angry with him that they gunned him down in the carport of, of his home. Mm. There were armored car robberies. There were bombings of churches and synagogues. The, the story of what the Pacific Northwest endured has never been properly told. But here we were punk rockers in Oregon, and we had seen this before, and so had others. And we knew that it was time to come together. What really sets this off in the Pacific Northwest is a great book called It Did Happen Here which is the story of how punk rockers come together in Portland. But across the Pacific Northwest, we decided to go bigger, right? We had already been used to building diverse spaces in the punk scene. So we thought we'll just be part of something bigger. And so we built coalitions in rural and urban areas. You could walk into those spaces, Paul, and you could see a blue-haired punk rocker sitting next to a Republican farmer or rancher sitting next to a law enforcement officer, sitting next to, to a back-to-land hippie. We may not have agreed on everything, but we knew organized bigotry wasn't the answer to the complex problems we were facing in our communities. And we banded together across the region to push back on this white nationalist movement. What was the name of that organizing? Was that mm-hmm. Did that become Western states? So there were a number of organizations that were, were part of that, everything from uh, the Center for Democratic Renewal out of the South was part of that. Uh, it was local community groups like the Rural Organizing Project, Montana Human Rights Network, uh, even smaller local groups like the Bellingham Human Rights Task Force, the Bonner County Human Rights Task Force, the Anti-Defamation League, American Jewish Committee, Coalition for Human Dignity. You can't imagine the number of organizations, even shockingly to folks who are listening, even anti-racist skinheads were part of this large coalition. These were skinheads, actually the majority of skinheads in this country who do not believe in white supremacy, who do not believe in neo-Nazism, joined this. Everyone, the motto, before we even knew this was a motto, was everyone in, no one out. And oh, so wow. you would see all kinds of configurations, uh, leaders from the LGBTQ community, the list goes on. Again, we weren't saying that we had everything figured out or that we agreed on everything, but we knew that we had to come together, that there was something more important that we needed to stand on and stand for, yeah. right? That was even more important than the very important disagreements that we might. Well, this is like almost a lesson for organizing is that I think sometimes we 
we step on one another and we trip over this idea that we have to agree on everything in order to do anything, which is fundamentally impossible. And what you're offering here is this grand coalition that recognized a threat and recognized a threat to each one of them in different ways, but heard one another. My guess is a punk could be sitting there and saying, oh, it never occurred to me that you as a Republican farmer, this might be a problem for you. And in the specific way, it's a problem for you, which is different than the specific way it's a problem for me. But yet we have to come together. Otherwise, we're all going to suffer. I think you know this is really an important lesson that I know you've been taking with you all the way along. And, and it's an important lesson for us to be thinking about now. This has not gone away. Up next, lots more with Eric Ward of Race Forward. But we do need to take another break. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. From that time to now, how do you see the same sort of impulse towards this white supremacy, violence, uh, white nationalism, Christian nationalism, all of it kind of in this ball of resentment, anger, and, and, and attempt of domination? How do, you see, how do you see it different? How do you see it the same? And what can we learn from what you've just described? Yeah, so what we know is that movement then was a subcultural phenomenon, right? No one wanted to stand with it for the most part, neither conservative or liberal, neither Democrat or Republican, left or right, however you wanted to cut it. This was something that was outside of the bounds of American democracy. It was a movement that was committed to both political violence, right, intimidation and harassment, not to strengthen democracy, but to usurp it and to replace it with a white-only ethnostate. That puts it out of the bounds of negotiation. Now, look, even with that said, I still think even white nationals deserve a roof over their heads. Even white nationals deserve the best opportunities for their children. They don't deserve to be bankrupt, right? Having to choose between health care and keeping the electricity on, right? But at the end of the day, those are conditions of society, of equity that we want to bring. That kind of equity brings opportunity to mm-hmm. a democracy, regardless of who benefits from them. And uh, the ideology is something we oppose because it's dangerous for democracy. It's dangerous towards the idea of inclusion that we can move forward together as a society. So for me, I think the difference now is it's moved from subculture to mainstream. It has affected all parts of our society. It has attached itself to political movements as part of a coalition. And uh, it understands that at the end of the day, to become a viable alternative, it has to prove there is no other alternative. And so it has spent the last six years attacking the idea 
of a multiracial democracy, of an inclusionary society, the idea that of uh, a people centered. And uh, it's been effective because we haven't countered with a uh, real unified narrative. They are, for the past six years, I am curious, are you identifying kind of the rise of Donald Trump as part of that? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, Trumpism yeah, yeah. is the coalition they attach themselves. It's the coalition. <laughs> That's right. And I think that it's so interesting that, you know, they are creating a zero-sum game. Their goal is not to, like, be part of a, a compromise and, and imagination going forward. They're saying that the alternative is not not tenable. And I, I think what you ended there with, or, you know, you were in the middle of it expounding, is, is really important because it's something that I really want to get into. Is like, how do we cast a vision that is sufficiently inviting, that is compelling, that imagines an America that is a patriotism, that, in, that is expansive and imaginative and, and, and thinking forward of, yes, even the white Christian conservative who has like ideas that I don't agree with, they are allowed to live side by side with me and in a way that we can both thrive and not have to become a zero sum game. And this is the opportunity for us in some ways. I mean, if we view it in positive, it's an opportunity for us to really really imagine and we have so many great examples from baldwin we we have we have king we have all these people who have helped us with that imagination it is our time to imagine going forward i, I so i want you to continue with what does that imagination look like and then how do we organize around that so that we can win frankly so let's talk about this this imagination there are three narrative tricks that the white nationalist movement Christian nationalist, but Trumpism has played on the American public. And uh, we should reject these fables that they have pitched to us as, as narratives. So the first narrative is an anti-Semitic one, and it has appeared around titles called the Great Replacement Theory, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that immigrants are secretly invading the country under these global elite, which means Jews, by the way. And so we have to fight this great uh, battle against good and evil. That's the great replacement theory. There's QAnon, right? The idea that there's a global elite, e.g. Jews, right, who are secretly at work in order to destroy what? The gene pool. Mm. It's a blood libel, mm. right, through the sexual exploitation of white children, right? It's, it's the white slave trade, mm. anti-Semitic trope. That's the second narrative grounded in anti-Semitism. And then the third narrative grounded in anti-Semitism is this idea that uh, non-Jews don't have to learn about anti-Semitism. And then when we stumble into it, it gets used to wedge the civil rights community against itself. Those are the oh, three yeah. ways that that anti-Semitic narrative. So look, the first thing we have to do if we're serious about this moment is we have to understand this narrative of anti-Semitism and the way that it drives uh, uh, and fuels much of the aspirations and vision of this anti-democracy movement called white nationalism. So we have to get better on anti-Semitism, which means we have to stop pretending like we understand what anti-Semitism is and spend a little time learning it. You can't counter a narrative that you don't understand. And that narrative, we had another hour Right. We could unpack the impact of that narrative, but it has taken lives. It has shifted policies 
and has allowed the white nationalist movement to keep itself central to that Trumpism MAGA coalition. Yeah. Now, when you think about Charlottesville, the, the people wielding torches and saying Jews will not replace us, that's not an accidental chant to be wielding while right. carrying, you know, some sort of tiki candle or whatever. That is directly fueling what many people understood exactly what they were saying. For, uh, for others of us, it was like, what are they saying? But the, the white nationalist community knew exactly what they were saying. And then for Trump That's to say right. good people on all sides is to basically, again, normalize this in a way that allows it to become all of a sudden now part of what is considered appropriate protest or appropriate for our country dialogue, when in fact, it's actually, you know, a frontal attack on a segment of our population that has, you know, endured already horrific things. And so I just want to, again, like what, what you're saying is there's actions that you can point to these are not ideas. These are practices in some ways. And, and you're like, they, they, you're just, are, they are practices. And it's essential. Like when you think about it, you're, you're exactly right. We have to understand that at the end of the day, right, the white nationalist movement is telling a story and it's trying to convince the American public of a story. It doesn't care whether that story is true or not. Right. It's does it help them build base? And does it help them build power? Mm. And whether it's true or not, doesn't even matter to that movement. And that's yeah, let me let me just say that this this idea that's of truth right. is like really interesting. We we had Jeff Charlotte on our show, and I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the, his book, The Undertow. Yes, he he has this really interesting, like kind of terrifying way of talking about the the QAnon movement that has infused itself completely with the the right Christian church, unfortunately, much to the exasperation and dismay of conservative pastors who are like, oh my God, what is happening? But he he describes it as Gnosticism, a kind of a terrible Gnosticism where facts don't matter, truth doesn't matter. Rather, what matters is, do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? And if you know, then you know. If you know that Hillary Clinton has been assassinated, that Donald Trump is is president and that there's a international pedophilia ring that Hillary Clinton has run for years. I mean, like these crazy ideas. If you know, you know. And if you don't know, you don't know. It doesn't matter about facts. It's the most terrifying, terrifying. uh, You know, so again, all I'm doing is kind of like responding and saying, oh, my God, yes, exactly what you're saying is right. And let's not forget. It's not just a story. It's a story that brings about outcomes. So we, we forget, right, the, the uh, last September, the shooting of Igor Lannis, who killed his wife and injured his daughter, right, or the, or the 2018 nine-day standoff in Tucson, Arizona at the cement plant, or uh, the individual who killed his wife because he thought uh, she had passed on serpent. DNA to to his kids. The list goes on, right? There have been at least, I believe, nine kidnapping incidences, right, related to to QAnon. But unless we do our work around understanding anti-Semitism, we don't understand these narratives, these right. conspiracies, right. when they get thrown out. So understanding anti-Semitism inoculates us. But there's two other narratives that I yeah. think are important yeah. that we take on. The second is this idea that we're here because we're losing, right? The biggest myth the white nationalist movement and Christian nationalists want us to believe 
is that we're losing. But the truth is, we're not here because we're losing. We're here because the civil rights movement was actually victorious. It made the case that we should live in a multiracial nation grounded in democracy and equality. And here's the kicker. More Americans today, including white Americans, by percentage, are supportive of that vision than at any time in American history. For instance, more white Americans today by percentage, not whole number, so you know, I'm not trying to trip people up, by percentage, are supportive of Black Lives Matters today than were supportive of Martin Luther King Jr. in his lifetime. Consistently, about 40% of white America, through different issues on surveys, indicate that they too aspire to live in this inclusive multiracial democracy. The truth is the white nationalist movement, Christian nationalists are attempting to usurp democracy, right? Attempting to drive wedges between communities because they actually know that their time is short. This is not Ooh. about white genocide. Everybody, right? take a moment. Take a moment. Let's take like moment. let's let, let let's take that in. And I had a chance to talk to Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who's a, a marvelous woman, a, a woman of color, a lesbian rabbi. I was like, you know, living at the intersection of all these. She was like, this must be terrible for you. Like, what what gives you hope? And she said, you know what, Paul. We've already won. We just need to finish the job. She might have put it differently than you, but she was like, we're not losing. We're winning if we no. can recognize what we're doing as actually right. the will of an American people. I think this is a really important because we have a sense of fear driving us rather than conviction about the That's future. Right. That's exactly right. And the, the task before us is to prove that a multiracial nation can govern multiracial. That's mm. what we mm. are attempting to do. The white nationalist movement, through its influence over Trumpism, attempted to disrupt that, right? Yeah. That's the propaganda you hear today. And we have to prove differently. Look, at the end of the day, we do have to prove the case that we can govern. Right. But we have to do it through actual governance. And that's why elections are important. And here's the last piece, the last piece, and then I'll leave it alone. The last thing we have to do is we have to stop waiting for the one answer, the one day, mm. the idea that there's one piece on this thread. And if we pull it, everything will come undone and we will live happily ever after. That's simply not it. And I wish it were. But the truth is, is that all of us have to do the next few things. The first is have to be in some kind of organization, right? If that's a, uh, a religious committee, whether that's a real estate club, a bowling club, a punk rock band, you, you have to be in an organization. And so what I tell folks to do is you got to talk to folks who you think already agree with you and you got to get them in your living room or in your practice space or on the baseball field. And you got to figure out, right? What's the one thing you all can do? Right. There's something you can do and you should do that thing. So that's the first thing. Got to be in group. Then you got to figure out what it is you can do. The next is you got to hold elected officials accountable in this moment. Right. Elected officials have figured out 
that fear and bias, right, can win elections. And they are beating those drums each and every day. And they don't care what the cost is to our communities, to our families, to our neighborhoods. And we have to begin to hold them accountable, even uh, uh, even if you don't think they're going to listen to you. When they peddle bigotry, you have to contact them and let them know it's unacceptable. And then the third thing, look, let us know what you're doing at RaceForward. Be in touch with us at raceforward.org. Uh, uh, let us know what you're doing. Find other groups, right, that are engaged in this work. Be in touch with one another, lest you start to believe the myth that we are isolated. We're an isolated minority. We're, we're not. We are a multiracial nation that's ready to move forward. Mm. I I love that. I love everything about what you said. It, this, listen, wherever you're listening to this, you are not alone and you are not without power. Find a space right. to share a community with, get engaged, talk about things that matter. The one thing I would add to your second point, it's not only that the vast majority of America wants to live in a multiracial nation. They want to live in a multi-religious world. That's right. 75% of Americans want to live in a nation that includes religious diversity. They are not in favor of a Christian nation. And I, my hope is that Interfaith Alliance can work with Race Forward to figure out a way that we can celebrate the racial as well as the religious complexity of our country as a power, as a good thing, as a, as something that Americans want so that we can, we can remind people, actually, this is, this is not, you know, the, the white Christian nationalist movement does not represent the will of the people. The people want no. to live with a, in a, in a religiously diverse world and feels enriched by it. And I think that that's, these are all things to celebrate. I, I want yeah. to ask you two things to close. The first one is what scares you? Yeah. Yeah. So what scares me? Look, I grew up as a punk rocker 30 years ago who found his scene under attack by the same phenomenon. That's the thing I want folks to understand. I'm speaking to this not from reading a book, but having faced it in my community having attended white nationalist meetings to understand this movement, right? And what I want to tell folks is what scares me the most is that people are actually not going to stand up and defend multiracial democracy. And I don't mean physically. That's the white nationalist myth. This is not a physical struggle. This is about defending democracy, making our institutions stand up for the principles we all believe are important. And I don't think we're going to do that. I think instead, and this is my fear, we're going to get drawn into these fake debates, these false debates. They're going to keep wedging. They're going to keep trying to find issues. They're going to keep trying to find things that they can take. Look, they're not trying to build a Christian nation. They're trying to distort Christianity in order to build political power in this country. Mm -hmm. We should be honest. We've all grown up on the musical The Music Man. Right. This is the snake oil salesman calling themselves white nationalists. I doubt they even care about white people that much, but they are committed to building political power and they can't do that in a democracy. And they can't do that in a society that actually wants to live together in inclusion. 
So they have to create a reality to make us believe it. And, uh, you know, my greatest fear is we're going to believe their hype and we're not going to defend democracy. Mm. And uh, uh, they're going to do what they weren't actually able to do to the punk scene, right, which is destroy it. They're going to destroy democracy just like they destroyed hunting, right, uh, 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 gun hunters, right, and their organization called the National Rifle Association. Let's remember the National Rifle Association was made up of hunters and target practice folks, right? Once they got their hands on it, look what they did to that organization, mm. right? They, they mm. destroyed it. They will destroy anything they get their hands on. If you let them get their hands on Christianity and other faith-based, they will destroy those too. Mm. It's important for faith voices to speak up and to take this seriously. Mm. Don't wait until they steal it from you. Yeah. Okay. And the converse, what gives you hope? Yeah. You know, what gives me hope is still uh, music. Punk in all of its forms is uh, still vibrant in this country. I was just at a show uh, a couple months ago with a country bluegrass band that has hip hop, right? They have hip hop artists incorporated in, into the music. So it's hip hop bluegrass. And what were they singing about? They were actually doing songs about all kinds of things, but they had a song condemning anti-Semitism as a form of racism. They had songs talking about real people. I was next to someone, right, who was a white Navy veteran, right, out of, uh, uh, out of a rural part of Washington. And we were hanging together, enjoying the same music, right, having a, a, a good time. For that one moment, right, the thing that was most important to us, was not our race, right? It was the thing that we were passionate about and loved, which was music. So music still gives me hope. And the way we practice that kind of hope in politics and in economy, right, and in faith, right, uh, uh, I think it comes back tenfold. So what gives me hope right now is folks are about to be super creative on what it means to defend and shore up democracy. And I think we're gonna see it from quilting clubs. I think we're gonna see it from chefs. It's not just gonna be elected officials. I think we're gonna see our best and, and brightest minds begin to understand that we have to make the argument and defend inclusion in this society. Oh, it's I, what gets us out of it. Okay, I can't let you get away without saying, what the name of your band is and how we can follow. Because this is like, you know, he's talking about punk as if it's past tense, but you still play. And so why don't you, why don't, you know what? I should have just introduced you as a rock star. I don't know why I left that as a, at, the, at, the, at the, at the end. This is a rock star people. And, and we're going to, and, and, and now I'm a groupie. I'm actually um, leaving Interfaith Alliance in order to like, you know, uh, stack the, uh, the amplifiers. No, what is the name of your handle and your groups? So that people who, when you're showing up, we will show up with you. Absolutely. And please do not leave Interfaith Alliance. It <laughs> is, uh, that was such a wonderful joining of leadership and organization. We're coming towards you, so you can't leave yet. We're, we're uh, all, all excited. But here's what I would tell folks. So I still perform uh, Bulldog Shadow, if folks are curious. There is an EP out there. You know, I'm, I'm the guy, look. This is the thing. We don't always have to start at the highest or biggest points, right? So I'm not selling out stadiums. I'm the person who gets to play music when they're setting up, 
right? Setting up in the room. But it brings me into the company of wonderful musicians and other singer-songwriters and in the community. That's the thing. We don't need to recreate the March on Washington. Mm. We just need to learn how to walk with our friends down our street, right, mm. to a restaurant together. Ooh. We need to practice first these little things. And so you can do that. You don't have to just do that through politics. I'm telling you. I don't believe that hype, too. That might just be potlucks you do in your community. Who knows what it is? Start with something small and see where it leads. Do it with other folks. Make it mm. fun. Make it creative. The white nationalist movement is trying to suck all the joy out of America. And our job is to make sure that if we are to be the last surviving humans in America, we're going to do it with joy. We're going to do it with creativity. <laughs> And we're going to do it with unapologetic love that says, oh, yes. I don't care if oh, you're yes. a 16-year-old trans-Latina living in Portland, Oregon, or a 78-year-old white male veteran right, living in Alabama. Both of you deserve jobs and opportunities free of discrimination. Both of you deserve to live, love, worship, and work free from fear and bigotry. I am unapologetic about that. If other folks are unapologetic about that, Check it out. We're all in movement. Today. All right. We're, I think both the trans Latina and the and the white veteran are welcoming your the mosh pit, yes. a bulldog shadow. And listen, listen, Eric Ward. Thank you so much for your time today and for your vision and for all of the joy and possibility and hope you bring, as well as naming what we need to be aware of, so we can be heads up, but also not heads in the sand. We are winning and we got to keep going together so thank you so much eric ward so appreciate sitting with you my friend and with that i'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show we need your help in keeping state of belief on the air i hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.